Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. This podcast will seek to define and explain this important question from multiple points of view. We will interview owners, breeders, caregivers, defenders, advocates, champions, and educators. The mission of my podcast is to seek and foster collaborative conversations where every point of view feels heard, acknowledged, and appreciated. I look forward to you joining me on this journey toward a better understanding of each other. It is possible to have an impossible conversation. It starts with listening for common ground first. I am so glad you're here listening in with me. Now let's see what my next guest has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, host of Why Do Pets Matter, the podcast. And I'm here with Dr. Alex Rowell of Oregon State University. He is the guru of well-being for the Carlson Veterinary um, Medical School. It's, it's Carlson College of Veterinary Medicine um, at Oregon State University. Alex, thank you so much for being here. And the, the conversation we're going to have today about well-being is, is key, especially in these current times. Yeah, yeah, Deborah. You know, I, pre I appreciate you really having me on, and I'm excited to be here and talk about things from veterinary medicine wellness to even our current situation with the COVID-19. But um, I'm here to kind of serve as a guide and give some data and stats about what mental health looks like in uh, veterinary medicine and at the college level. I know it. It really is interesting. We were talking a little before this. Um, this conversation started uh, that in fact likely some of the students you've had at Carlson um, keep in touch with you in your private practice as well because you've established that um, comfort zone that they can come back and help have you help them with things that come up. Yeah yeah you know it's interesting because I have seen some uh, recent graduates of the OSU program in my private practice and um, one thing that 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 they really like about kind of meeting with me is that, they, that, that I have knowledge about what the stressors are, what some of the problems are, difficulties of what it means to be a veterinarian, not just in the professional program for those first 40 years or so, but actually when they get out, get out in practice. Um, so I, I try to create you know, a, a safe and welcoming space to talk about some very difficult things such as um, student debt, burnout, compassion fatigue, depression, and anxiety, um, kind of some of these moral kind of dilemmas, ethical dilemmas, which I can maybe get into a little later, that's quite unique uh, to veterinary, uh, the veterinary profession. But yeah, it's, it's, it's one of these things that once I'm able to kind of establish rapport with these students and then eventually veterinarians, um, it, it's a nice um, it's nice for them not to have to explain what maybe an on-call shifts entails or difference between large and small animal or, you know, some of the nuances of the veterinary medicine profession. That really gives them the opportunity to speak to someone who understands, as you said, the underlying nuances. So they don't have to explain something, but rather someone comes to the table with pre free knowledge and helps them get through it. So before we go any further, because I can't wait to get into this conversation about wellness, uh, let our listeners know why pets matter to you. Uh, why pets matter? Uh, you know, I, I was thinking about that before I came on today, and I, they matter to me uh, beyond words that could be described. So I, 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 my wife and I have three dogs of our own, 
And um, I've always grown up with a household full of animals, everything from turtles to rabbits to dogs. Um, and they've always been uh, really important in my life. They're, they're my partner and I joke around that are, are furry children. Uh, so, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, we love them, you know, they come and cuddle with us. And sometimes it's like, oh no, they've torn up another toy or another part of the couch. And, um, they just, I, I just really enjoy having, especially my three dogs around because they're so welcoming and loving and they have all their little idiosyncrasies about what makes them special. And, um, I guess our dogs or my dogs, and uh, it, it's always been a really important part of my life. And I, you know, and I always plan to have some types of animals just because um, they're, they bring another kind of exciting dimension to life. So yeah, I, I, they're, they're, they're very important to me, I think in summary. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you told us about that. I also had turtles um, for my sons. I had uh, box turtles and they are quite fabulous mm -hmm. as are um, I lizards as well um, so it was really uh, having the ability to have numerous animals I always told my children they were very lucky that why do pets matter to their mother she would allow them to have anything and we would sustain life as long as we could and mm -hmm. uh, the veterinarians loved us because we had all sorts of animals going to the veterinarian yeah. but in your position now pets really do matter to um, you and to your clients and colleagues in such a different way. Tell me a little bit about what you observe regarding some of your clients and how pets matter to them because they're vet students and they've got a huge um, educational piece to surmount before they become veterinarians. Yeah. And, and then some of them, I think, probably have pets that help them navigate that. Yeah, I think, you know, I've been doing this work for about four years now at the college, and there's a wide range of experience. So, for example, the typical maybe story someone might hear is like, oh, I've always I knew I wanted to be a vet when I was four or five years old because I just love animals. And there's also another stories or stories that I work with when I um, see clients is they just it's something that they've just been passionate about. Maybe didn't know until high school or college, but it's something that that has a significant intrinsic drive that they want to help those who are unable to have a voice. Um, so I think for me, what I see in my clinical work is, is that some of these attachments to um, their animals, it could be dogs, cats, rabbits, you know, any, any type of species, mammals, whatever it may be, is that it is a big emotional support system for them. And it's after an eight hour day, 10 hour day, 12 hour day, it's, it's nice to, you know, be welcomed by a very happy animal that's there to see you, even when you're feeling exhausted. And, and for some of these students um, growing up, you know, those who wanted to be veterinarians when they were four or five years old, they have a very strong attachment to these animals. And um, all mammals, so humans included in that, the attachment system is something that that is our emotional survival. Uh, you know, we need oxygen to biologically survive, but we need an emotional kind of you know touching or comfort or security to keep us emotionally alive. And for a lot of our veterinary medicine students, it's that strong of an attachment they have to their pets and they really love them and care for them and have a very authentic connection with them. And it's something that, that is really wonderful to see. And they have that with their own pets, absolutely. So the attachment to their own pets helps them get through school. But then 
I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, the attachment to their patients and their clients who own their patients yeah. is key. And, and often um, they're, they're told, if not in vet school, but when, they're, wait, when they get out, that you know, if they have to charge for something, mm-hmm. um, that, that they really don't love animals, and that's so untrue. But I always tell the veterinarians who call my office, you just need to explain to them you have to turn the lights on. Yeah, can't do anything. And so this attachment that they have to all animals um, and the attachment that probably builds with your client Mm -hmm. sometimes really cause them to have stress um, Mm -hmm. and burnout and depression. And that's when they they have to reach out to someone like you to help them, especially in this practice, because veterinary medicine and and vet schools um, have been found to be some of the most stressful um, areas because everybody has this attachment to the animal. Yeah, I haven't met with one veterinary medicine student or one veterinarian for the for a matter of a matter of fact that I is said that I went in for the money. I, that has not been uh, my experience working with veterinary medicine students and within the college and university, and um, they, especially students or even practicing veterinarians, they have um, a very they're very compassionate. They're helpers, they're empaths. There's, they're, they are people who really care about the well-being of other living things, so animals or patients in, in a clinical context. But unlike any other type of medicine, um, you have to balance not only the patient, which is the animal, but you also have to navigate the world of the client, which is the owner, um, which is a very different dynamic than human medicine, uh, for example. And even in human medicine, in theory, sometimes insurance can help aid in covering some expenses. Uh, veterinary medicine and animal health is not, there's some, you can get some type of insurance plans for animals, um, but usually it's, it's out of someone's pocket, an owner's pocket. And veterinary medicine is, um, it, it's, it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a big industry. I think the most recent stats, I've seen like $75 billion industry, but a lot of that money goes to food and toys, not so much animal care, a portion of it does. But um, so sometimes it's like, Hey, you know, can you help out my pet or can I get a discount? And, you know, Deborah, like you were saying that it's also a business and the, even though they might've gone into the healthcare profession, being a veterinarian to help heal, to help cure, to help, um, improve the life of others. It's also, they have to keep the lights on. They have to pay staff. They have to cover their own insurance. They have to run these tests. They have to get the equipment. And those things cost money. And, and sometimes those in the healthcare profession also have to realize that that is a business. To, to take care of patients and clients, they also have to take care of themselves. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think you're right. Sometimes there is a pushback, like, oh, if you really cared for this animal, you'd really do this. And I don't think it's, uh, you know, either or. It, it can be both. And um, it, it's just important to kind of note that. Going back to what I was saying earlier, saying earlier, I don't know any veterinarian who's gotten in for the money. They do it because they really love and care about the animals they work with. And, you know, when I hear you say that, it's it's so impactful because it is a business. They have to run a business. And if their clients are business owners, they know what it costs and overhead to get the products in the building. So the animals are the products. But then, God bless everything that's happened in the last, oh, I guess maybe the 1960s when people really still treated pets like pets. 
Yeah. Um, and now pets are treated more like children. Mm-hmm. And the, the ability to save a pet's life now from things that we would have put them to sleep for or we couldn't have helped them with, you know, cancer, broken bones, um, thyroid, uh, diabetes, uh, kidney failure, you name it, uh, veterinary medicine, working in concert with human medicine because a lot of the things that have come out of veterinary medicine are then used on humans because Mm -hmm. we have the similar body types. So all of these things have now have the ability to be done to pets Mm -hmm. and cost money because that research costs money and, you know, getting, as you said, I loved it, you know, the equipment and the testing. So that's, that's a fixed cost. And you have to pay for the equipment um, and you have to pay for the tests. And yes, you can do less tests, but then will it be diagnostically complete? And how do you have that conversation? So when we spoke earlier, I think part of what we agreed upon was that communication with clients is key. Mm -hmm. And veterinarians are incredibly empathic and empathetic, um, yet sometimes they're introverts and so they don't necessarily have that communication skill um, and often at least in my experience I don't know about yours you're going to tell us about your experience they take it to heart Mm -hmm. when someone criticizes them or asks them a question that really is simply a question for information not a question to challenge your knowledge or your decision yeah you know, I think, Deborah, I think is a great point. You know, think of one's profession, especially in the context of veterinary medicine, as almost a Venn diagram. The, the more you identify with your profession and when it's critique, criticize, altered, getting feedback, it feels like it's an attack on the self. Um, so, for example, you know, introverts, I mean, there's data to, to back that up. Elizabeth uh, Strand uh, at the University of Tennessee, she runs a, uh, she runs a kind of a social work veterinary medicine wellness program down there. But the data suggests that a lot of veterinary medicine people, students, uh, practicing professionals are introverts. And sometimes, it, it, as we've talked about earlier, it's difficult conversations and navigating those waters and realizing that you know, when clients come and they're upset, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're sad. Sometimes it's holding an empathic space in a safe place to just hold some of their sadness, some of their fear, some of their anger. And it's the kind of, hey, I can't imagine how hard this is. This is really difficult. Or this is very kind of, this must be an incredible loss for you after you've had this animal for 14 years. Instead of maybe explaining or giving what the prognosis is or the outcome is, that, that information is important as well. But as we've talked about earlier in the podcast or earlier in our discussions, that the number one things that buffer against litigation for malpractice suits is the, the patient-doctor relationship. And I'm speaking in the context of human medicine. So if the patient or the client feels that the doctor is understanding, is caring, is apologetic, is uh, empathic, that malpractice suits tend to decrease because the individual's feelings hurt. And I think that is the single best piece of information that can be imparted to vet students and new veterinarians and old veterinarians is that sometimes just being empathetic, just holding a safe space and recognizing, you know, that's the way Alex feels. Mm. That isn't really the truth of the matter. That's the way Alex feels. Let me support where he is. And Mm. then once, as you said, once a client or a patient feels heard, 
by the doctor, not yeah. told, well, that's not really what happened or no, you've got this wrong or no, that's not what I said. I, I often talk to veterinarians when we do have malpractice issues um, on the, or on the burner, I said, just listen. And when you're finished, say, thank you so much, Alex, you've given me so much information to think about. Yeah. Because if you respond, then first of all, it's going to seem to be an attack uh, by you on how they feel. And that never is helpful. Yeah. And you're going to want to defend yourself, which of course is human nature, as you know. Mm -hmm. And so you want to defend yourself, which may backfire. Yes, uh, definitely. And, and sometimes it's it's not about being necessarily right or wrong. So sometimes in medicine, we're like, what's the diagnosis? What is the condition? We like to find answers to certain things. And part of what people forget about medicine is also an art. Um, it is also, you have to have a kind of, not only here's the data, here's the medicine, prognosis, treatment, but also those kind of, those simple bedside manners, right? You know, how do you speak to clients? How do you speak to patients? Really meeting them where they're at, um, understanding, so, you know, for example, it might be very easy for, uh, for a veterinarian to judge on potentially why this person, this owner did not do the surgery or this treatment. But when this other owner has to live paycheck to paycheck, it, it gives a little more context. It gives a little more kind of understanding. It has nothing to do with how they are as an owner or as a person, but also those individuals, those owners have realities as well. Um, can they afford these treatments? Can we do this? You know, is it, well, I'm doing this treatment now, I'm not gonna be able to buy groceries or enough money for gasoline. So th there are also some realities and that can bring about a lot of fear, anger, frustration. And sometimes the easiest target in that moment can be the veterinarian, it could be the front desk staff, it could be the vet tech, um, and realizing that most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, it's not about the veterinary hospital, not about the doctor, not about the staff, not about the tech, it, it's something that's going on with that individual. It's the absolute fear. I love what you said because um, veterinarians in school, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right, are taught to listen to clients to hear symptoms that they can identify as being something else. They're straining to go to the bathroom. They're not eating. Um, they're breathing very heavily. Uh, the, a bunch of things that, you, that, that an owner is going to share that doesn't seem very you know, remarkable to the owner but gives the veterinarian insight into what might be wrong. And if they were able to then do the same thing yeah. with client emotions, just recognizing that the client emotions aren't necessarily aimed at them, but rather their shield. I know that when uh, my veterinarian talks to me and things are occurring, um, I have to weigh the costs and the benefits to the pet, mm -hmm. uh, the costs and the benefits to my family. Um, and don't we feel really bad if we say, well, hmm, it's going to be a long haul for this pet. It's going to be really expensive. And then, you know, maybe as the vet said, I might get a year. Let's talk osteosarcoma. I may get a year if I cut their leg off. Well, do I want to do that? And people have different ways of dealing with that. Some say, absolutely, anytime I can have with my pet is wonderful. And that's fine. And that's wonderful. And then other people might say, listen, that seems to be all about me and not about the pet because I really can't explain to the pet why they have three legs now. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're doing it their way. And I think that if veterinarians had the ability, as you said, um, to be empathic for clients' um, stress and fear and guilt 
and desire to do the right thing for their um, dogs. Sorry about that. No good. Stress and fear and do the right thing for their dogs, then the amount of conflict would be less. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And also, my, uh, we've been mainly talking the context of small animal companion animal and for those who are large animal horses cattle things like that sometimes it's a business decision um, it is a business decision for someone's livelihood for someone's family so it's a different dynamic and understanding the cultural implications on and impact that you know someone might spend thousands of dollars on their small kind of companion animal in a, you know, in, in a suburb or maybe in a city or maybe a more rural area that, that financially would not make sense. It would not be a good business decision. And they have to think of alternatives. And um, again, that's not good or bad, right or wrong. It's just, that's what someone's reality is. And given their cultural context, that that's kind of what, what decision they have to make. And it's, like I said, it's not good, bad, right, or wrong, but if we can understand that, uh, increase our empathy, it, it, it makes, it can make it a little easier why someone's making these decisions. And being respectful of a person's decision, both as the vet and the staff and the front desk, and understanding that it might not be what you would do. Uh, but that really, if the person either has the wherewithal to pull all the stops out, great. Um, if they don't, fine. Mm -hmm. But being able to support that person where they are, because I think that is the biggest key to well-being in both your client mm -hmm. and the veterinarian, is that you give them all the information, they chose what was best for them, and I either have to be happy about that, um, or I can offer an alternative, maybe, that they would be willing to accept. Because I know that in a number of um, vet clinics uh, and vet school clinics, mm -hmm. sometimes if a patient comes in and can't pay for something that's a simple fix, maybe a broken mm -hmm. leg or something, they can sign those dogs over and the hospital will then fix it and maybe work with a rescue. We just had that with an Irish setter puppy. Mm -hmm. um, the University of Pennsylvania orthopedics fixed this puppy's leg and they did a GoFundMe. The owner turned it over to them. And, and that's okay too. Yeah, um, And that really gives everybody the ability to say, oh, good. So if you, you can't do it, I get it. Um, we don't want to make you feel bad because you can't do it. Um, would it be okay if we kept it and see if, in fact, we can fix its leg? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and again, sometimes when people are making these decisions, owners, for example, there's a lot of emotions going on. And I, I think of Cooler Ross's stages of grief that, for example, if it's a, you know, a potentially significant diagnosis or a chronic diagnosis, maybe a fatal diagnosis, you know, there's that denial, anger, depression, kind of, you know, bargaining, um, acceptance. And that can play out all in one session meeting kind of thing, or that can kind of play it over a series of time. And again, realizing that there may be other options um, and looking at other avenues that could be explored, but realize this is not an easy decision or decision anyone really wants to make when it when it comes down to it. That, yeah, like, I'm sure yet, you, you know, your animal could live, but also giving them up can be very difficult and be very hard. You know, Alex, we've definitely covered such a, a broad area. What I'd like to 
talk about just for the few minutes we have left yeah. is the well-being of the veterinarian as they're navigating this because that's where your expertise comes in mm -hmm. they really do have to have um, someone there who helps them take the time to take a step back mm -hmm. and recognize the um, different levels of denial and mm -hmm. and anger and you know bargaining that mm -hmm. this client is going through and they're not good at that that's not really what they go to school for yeah yeah well you know it's interesting uh, all mammals humans included have um primary emotions in that limbic system amygdala they all have their primary emotions it depends what the cognitive data and science says but fear anger disgust joy sadness um i think that's all of them fear anger disgust joy uh and sadness yeah so anywhere from five to seven surprises as some of the research says that's another one but again the, these emotions they they tell us something they are internal data and we have had that part of the brain more established in their frontal lobe which kind of makes us humans different from a lot of other mammals but yeah sometimes we forget like hey i'm just going to rationalize my way out of this i can explain it and sometimes you know just sitting with the emotion of hey i feel really sad i'm unable to help this animal or i feel a lot of frustration or anger towards this owner um, about not doing x y and z but recognizing that because if there's no internal recognition it'll come out in other ways it'll be a come out as commenting on a Yelp comment or yelling at an owner or like, oh gosh, I don't want to see this, you know, this owner and this, you know, pet again because of X, Y, and Z. But it's important to kind of recognize those emotions. And, you know, I, I kind of want to cite some data. I mean, so veterinary medicine students now, so we're looking at maybe 18 to 44. So I think about, I think it's millennials and Gen uh, Z they are more likely to access mental health services for um so for depression or for anxiety for stress or burnout and that's a lot of the students that that i see on a daily level um so these are these are individuals who in veterinary medicine programs have a lot of stressors and also they're more willing to seek out therapy and counseling as opposed to those who've been practicing for 20, 30, 40 years when you know they went to school in the 70s, 80s, maybe 90s, and this wasn't even a discussion there. It was kind of like, hey, you need to buck up. Or like, this is the way my mentor did it and you're gonna do it this way now. So, so I, I think that, yeah, a, a lot more younger generation is more accepting and willing to, to seek out services, which is like why I have my position, why every vet school in the country that I'm aware of has at least one mental health professional. It's definitely, the colleges have responded um, over the last five to 10 years in a very uh, positive way as far as getting in, um, getting people in, but also recognizing that there's still work to be done, as always there is. So. Absolutely. And, you know, you spoke of Dr. Elizabeth Strand before. She started the first uh, veterinary social work uh, system or, or study um, at uh, University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Uh, and it it really has been groundbreaking because it allows veterinarians, as you said, to seek help. And some of the things that drive students to become veterinarians is their desire to succeed, to take care of animals, to be perfect, mm -hmm. to make sure everything is perfect. Uh, and when they see that something is slipping, 
we now hopefully have the language to enable them and allow them and encourage them to seek out help from someone like you mm -hmm. instead of internalizing it all, you know, creating that I'm just so terrible, I just am so bad, instead of I did bad on a test or, you know, I, I did terrible on a test, I am bad, I am terrible. Mm -hmm. And get that out so that you as a mental health professional and well-being you know, guru for veterinary students and veterinarians, get them to understand that it's okay um, to make mistakes, to say stupid things, to do all sorts of things that aren't perfect. Um, because unfortunately, or fortunately, none of us are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's okay uh, to, to make mistakes. And usually failures is our life's greatest teacher. And um, yeah, you know, being perfect is impossible, but yet we strive to do it, especially in medicine, especially in kind of Western society, and learning how to deal with maybe disappointments or being upset or not getting, you know, 100% or all A's uh, 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 for, this for the first time ever. Yeah, time is, it, is it, it definitely like it can be quite jarring for a lot of people because these are very intelligent, smart, motivated individuals who really care about what their profession is and what their school is. And also um, realizing that it's okay to make mistakes. Sometimes in therapy, you know, I, I will kind of apologize if I'm running a little late or if I misremembered someone's name in their life. Um, so for example, a, a partner or family member and modeling that's, hey, you know, I, I'm not going to be the perfect clinician, the perfect psychologist. But um, most of the time, clients or consumers or patients aren't looking for the perfect doctor. They're looking for the doctor that understands them the most. And those and are very different things. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, I was saying, I was saying there's very different things. Oh, they are totally different things because you can make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And if you acknowledge them, take responsibility, and work toward figuring out when clients call my office, when a veterinarian in their opinion has made a huge mistake, the first thing out of their mouth, always, without a doubt, every single one, I just don't want this to happen to anybody else again. Mm -hmm. So they're in the perfect mindset to work as a partner with a veterinarian to identify what they believed went wrong. And it probably was just communication, uh, over communication of hopeful possibilities and not over communication or adequate communication of, okay, but this is what could go wrong. Because yeah. we always want to keep that positive. Everything's going to work out. And, and often you have to give both um, because the client needs to make an educated decision. And as a veterinarian, you're never going to work toward uh, the lowest denominator. You're mm -hmm. going to work toward the highest denominator. And then yeah. it's, it's always up to, you know, the angels and God and the pet uh, to decide which way they're going to go. Yeah. Yeah, I've kind of found, especially um, in veterinary medicine, that if perfectionism is maybe, uh, which can be sometimes the root cause or a lot of these things that, that lead to depression or anxiety or stress, usually shame and guilt are pretty close by um, and the fear of vulnerability. Those are all things or kind of content that is very close by that's beneath that perfection perfectionism so if we lift up the veil you know shame or guilt i'm not going to be enough or shame that like i should have known that or fear like what happened if someone thinks i'm an imposter Th those are things that are underneath the blanket of what's driving that perfectionism of like i need to know the answers i need to know x y and z and, and i tell 
I tell the students I work with, um, the most dangerous type of doctor is the one that thinks they know all the answers. That is the most dangerous type of there. Doesn't consult, doesn't read research. It's like, oh, no, I got this. Uh, don't question me. This is what it is. Those are the most dangerous types of um, either for physicians or veterinarians that it's important to lean on colleagues during stressful times or complicated cases um, for not only the well-being of the, the, the practitioner, but also well-being of the patient or the, the pet in this case. You know, you've talked, touched on so many things. I'm going to go through this and bring you back so we can dive deeper. Uh, but the three things I'm taking away is, you know, respect for yourself and your client and the pet. That's key. Because if you can't respect yourself, you really can't respect your client or the pet. So you need to start right there. You have to know what you're bringing in the room that drives you. So you can recognize, as you said, to respect yourself and know that failure is not fatal um, and often is the better teacher uh, than constant success. Um, having empathy to for yourself and for your clients is key. Um, mm -hmm. And learning communication skills, which I know that your vet school likely teaches mm -hmm. in a big way, uh, because communication doesn't always mean speaking. It mm -hmm. often means listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there's something that in uh, graduate school that that we get the introduction at the first level, like a first you know term class as a clinical psychologist, and it's called the ORS, and it's O A R S, and what it stands for is open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summary. So if you can stick to the ORS when you, especially initially meet with a client or an owner, that, that, that those kind of four pillars can really go a long way at gathering information, understanding where they're coming from. Instead of like, hey, here's my intake sheet. I'm just going to fire off. Here are the questions. Um, you know, those are um, really, kind of really important pillars. And, you know, and kind of going back to your first point. Sure. Um, there, can you repeat it again? Because there's there's something in my mind, but but uh, so it's respecting yourself and your yeah. client. Yeah. So um, I think a very common self compassion analogy is you have to put on your oxygen mask first before you can help other people, and um, that feels very counterintuitive for those in the healthcare profession, special especially veterinarians, because they want to help. I, hey, it's okay. It's Friday at nine o'clock, nine p.m. I could pick up this shift, or I'll I'll see this extra client. And um, sometimes I'll even model to my own students, like in order for me to be the best therapist for you to be fully present. I can't see back to back to back to back students. I just, I just will not be there. And some, most of the time, like, okay, you know, I appreciate that. Instead of me just, just cramming them in, you know, I'm kind of staring off. I'm thinking about, oh, what am I going to have for dinner? Like, what's going to happen? Then in order for me to be the best practitioner, I have to kind of treat myself um, the way sometimes I'd even treat my clients, like with more compassion and empathy and understanding. That is so key, and I'm, I'm going to end it there because of the fact that it is, it is the single most important thing in my practice. So when you said ORS, that's sort of the credo of mediation because you really want to ask open-ended questions, you want to affirm things, you want to reflect things, and you want to summarize things in a way that people say, yeah, that, I, you got me, Alex, you got me, because then people feel heard. But being reflective of yourself mm -hmm. is the single most difficult thing to do yes. because, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, mm, I do have bumps and warts and gray hair and this and that. Hey, let it go. We all do. 
And, and I, I loved when you said you learn so much more from failure than you do from success. I know that firsthand. So Alex, thank you so much. We've been speaking with Dr. Alex Rowell, and he's from Oregon State University, um, the Carlson Vet School, correct? Carlson College of Veterinary Medicine, yeah. Carlson College of Veterinary Medicine. I always like when my, my guests correct me because I'm, I'm just so enraptured with what my guests are saying. This is another episode of Why Do Pets Matter? I'm so grateful for Alex for being here and hopefully you'll come back uh, and give us some more information because I think having veterinarians know well-being from an expert and having pet owners understand well-being from an expert of everyone would be just so valuable. So thank you so much. And until next week, this is Deborah Hamilton, host of Why Do Pets Matter? You've been listening to the podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. Do you have a great idea or guest or topic that you'd like me to cover? Write me at hamiltonlawandmediation.com or email me at whydopetsmatterpodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, our pets do matter. Thank you for being here with me.